with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today is going to be a really important conversation, and this really was sparked by an article by previous guest, Suze Wilson, and she's a senior lecturer at the School of Management at Massey University. And I reached out to her and Shelly Spiller and Brad Jackson, and I said, hey, I would love to have the three of you come on. And Brad said, I'd love to come on and join you for a conversation. I think we're in the midst of a fascinating case study. So what we have here is Suze Wilson, and we have Brad Jackson from the University of Waikato, and they are going to help us make sense of some of the leadership challenges and some of the situation that's happening in New Zealand right now. I couldn't think of uh, better people to really help me better understand the situation. So, Suze, maybe we start with you today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for doing the incredible work that you do. We're going to put some links to some of your writing into the show notes so listeners can can check in with that. But maybe we start by uh, the two of you providing a little bit of kind of background on why she is so important to New Zealand, but also just globally and how she is incredibly relevant right now on the global stage. Kia ora, Scott. Thanks for your interest in this topic. So Ardern, she's now no longer our Prime Minister. The transition to a new one has taken place. But right throughout her her role as leader of the Labour Party and then shortly thereafter as, as Prime Minister, she has attracted a lot of attention beyond New Zealand, partly because, you know, she was a relatively young woman who all of a sudden was the head of a major political party two months out from an election, which it looked like they didn't stand a chance of winning. And then she actually managed to pull the votes up because people were, I think, drawn to her, her energy and her the kinds of values and vision uh, that she was articulating for the future of the country. They managed to pull off a coalition deal and all of a sudden she was the Prime Minister. And then a few months after that, she announced that she was pregnant. She was only the first woman leader, head of state uh, in history after Benazir Bhutto to have a child in office. And that was, you know, something that kind of people looked to New Zealand and went, wow, isn't that 
fantastic. You can have a young woman who's a head of state and she can actually also have a child perform her job and, you know, be accepted as such. So there was, some, you know, some beautiful images of, of Ardern with her young baby off to visit, speaking at the United Nations. Um, and when she was pregnant, she went to visit the Queen. So there was some, you know, kind of really powerful imagery that started spreading about her right early on from her tenure. And then the Christchurch terror attacks happened. The world saw, rather than our thoughts and prayers kind of response, a response that demonstrated genuine empathy and concern, which which sought, sought to wrap care around the victims who were primarily members of the Muslim community and to act decisively in relation to gun control. So, you know, all of that built her reputation. She started to really be seen sort of as the anti-Trump, a different kind of leader. So, yeah, she's throughout her whole tenure, she's attracted a lot of interest from people around the world. Brad, when we had our conversation, gosh, this might be almost a year and a half ago, it was at the height of COVID, and we talked about even her response to COVID-19. At the time, I remember you providing me with this image of millions of people rowing in the same direction. Like there was a there was a vision of how to respond to this. And even in that emergency, you were talking about your respect for her ability to navigate the crisis situation. Yeah, and I think there was a strong personal dimension because I think I'd mentioned to you, I left Australia <laughs> at three days to leave. As I came here earlier than I anticipated, got here a day before lockdown, and I was reflecting on my, my wife and I sitting, you know, most relieved because we weren't sure we were going to get on the plane or what was going to happen, and, and sitting there watching the evening news and seeing Jacinda and uh, Ashley Bloomfield, who was our chief medical uh, officer, minister, minister of health, and just that feeling, the whole approach was so different to what I was experiencing in Australia. You know, Scott Scott Morrison, by the way, I know a lot of very nice Scots, but uh, so Scott, the, the, but just <laughs> but just the whole feeling was very different here. And that uh, in Australia, it was really focusing on the ten percent that were getting behind this, whereas in New Zealand, it was focusing on the ninety percent who were. And there was a sense of, of pride, that and a sense of collective responsibility as well. And globally, you know, actually saying, you know what, we're all facing this. We have a chance here to help the rest of the world in terms of how you can respond to these things. And, and I just want to commend, A, you know, it's a fantastic series that you've created, uh, Scott, and a great platform for this, but also my colleague, Sue, has done an awesome job of actually showing the benefits of um, an academic critical perspective on making sense of what happened during that period and then onwards too, and in particular, the article that, Sue's just recently written about the resignation and the fallout in the kind of situation there. So, yeah, in terms of creating a sense of a common cause and really bringing the whole country together, I've never experienced anything like that. I guess people talk about the Blitz in London under chat and all these other kinds of things. But there is a real, there was a sense that we were coming together, doing something very important, not only for New Zealand, but globally too. And so, yeah, I, I've got, a, I guess I've got a personal connection and I'm very, grateful. The other thing I think I mentioned to you at the time was Jacinda is one of our esteemed alumna from the uh, University of Waikato, our, our communications program here. So it's that, that felt that she's very much on the Waikato as well, you know, and so there was a, you know, going back to that place-based approach uh, to leadership, I think she exemplified that uh, beautifully. So yeah, it's not only a kind of a an ac critically academic detachment, it's very personal for me, and I know it is for Suze too as well. It, it mattered. And, and I think if you think about that, she made political leadership relevant to a lot of people who felt shut out from political leadership, particularly young people, women, those that were kind of perceived to be on the margins of societies, and also just struck a chord with our indigenous Pacifica community as well, LGBTQI. All of these, there was a sort of feeling that I think she sparked an interest in it sections of society that were pretty well outside of political leadership. And I think that's something that we're not only also with the mosque response as well, the Christchurch mosque response, but just this feeling that actually this matters and I I should be in on this too, which 
speaking to big undergraduate classes, you know, you mentioned Jacinda and the intention level goes up, you know, in a way that hadn't gone up for a while too. So I just feel that there was this moment at actual political leadership was first and was critical and we all had a role to play in that too. And uh, so that was a very special moment uh, that, I, that I'm very grateful to her yeah, for what she did there for us. Well, in a couple of times now, you've mentioned the mosque attacks. I mean, we have a, a woman who is entering a leadership role at a just unprecedented contextual shifts, whether it's the mosque attacks, volcanic explosion that occurred. I just watched a movie on Netflix, a documentary about that, which was fascinating to observe. We have COVID. So you have an individual who not only has a lot of contextual shifts at home, but she's navigating just, I mean, it's monumental. You know, there's this old saying we all know, right, about, you know, how crises pose a a true test of a leader's, you know, character and and skill. And then, you if you like, layer on top of that the kind of suspicion, really, about whether a woman leader would would be tough enough to handle uh, a crisis, you know, the the, the whole notion that somehow women are weak and emotional. So I think Ardun's legacy in relation to crisis leadership is not only to show us a different way of leading in crises, but also to absolutely put paid to the presumption that women are not actually hellishly damn good, actually, potentially in a crisis, at least in part because what she's done every time there has been a crisis is that she has centred an ethics of care right as pivotal lens through which she's communicating with people about what's going on and and how we should try to make sense of it. But also, I think, in terms of guiding decision-making to try and discern, well, what is the right thing to do here? So the the mosque attack, in particular, my understanding is she was was at an event in the northern half of New Zealand, where two main islands, for those who don't know, know that, Uh, So she was in the middle of the North Island uh, at an event when she was given a phone call that there was a a shooting event in Christchurch, which is in the middle of the South Island. And within a couple of hours, once it became public, you know, her first kind of press conference in response to that, already she had, if you like, framed the moral significance and the strategic significance of the event by by saying, this is probably going to be our worst day, but also saying, they are us. Rather than othering the victims, she's trying to encourage all of us to wrap our arms around a community which actually is a very small community within our country and which, of course, has been subjected to Islamophobic prejudice and, and abuse. She was immediately trying to, to reframe the situation in a way that was focused on the victim and immediately, you know, abhorring the actions of, of the terrorist. She took another, I think, clear moral stance in saying that she would never say his name, you know, and she's trying to encourage us to understand that what he wanted was fame, what he wanted was attention, and actually he doesn't deserve it. People that deserve our, our attention are the victims and, and their families. Um, so, you know, I think a really significant uh, example of of a leader being able to use, you know, their own kind of ethical and moral compass to make sense of what was an incredibly confusing situation. I mean, there was no clear, from a security perspective, there was no clear information for many hours. Was it just a, a, a one-off person? Attack. We didn't, you know, we didn't know if there were other mosques throughout the rest of the country that were going to be attacked. So it was an incredibly frightening time. But she was calm. She was clear. You could tell she was very determined that things were going to be done. That this would not stand. The level of outrage um, that had been committed on our shores was intolerable. Talk a little bit about your perception of her response with COVID and to the volcanic eruption. How did she respond that really stood out for either one of you? With the volcanic thing, I mean, she did what I guess most leaders will do is she turned up, she was present. But I think, you know, because of the the trust that she had built in people's minds through her response to the um, mosque shooting, when she turned up and demonstrated care 
for for those affected by the volcanic explosion. You know, it felt real. There was a sense that this was authentic, that it wasn't, this wasn't just a bit of spin doctoring for the cameras, that, you know, she was someone who really cared about situations. She also grasped that there were many tourists affected and therefore there would be, you know, a lot of international attention. And so I think she was conscious of wanting to display to the international community that the New Zealand government was doing everything that it possibly could to care for its citizens who'd been who'd been hurt on our place. With the pandemic, as Brad has said, the way she was able to build collective understanding and build collective effort around some really kind of simple principles about that we're trying to save lives and livelihoods with our approach and that you all have a role to play in this, trying to keep people informed, making sure that science um, was leading the, I feel like, the technical aspects of the response that, you know, we weren't actually going to, she wasn't going to do a Trump and say, oh, look, you know, I, I Googled something and maybe you want to, you know, down some bloody bleach and then the ivermectin and all that kind of nonsense. And, and it was clear that she, she's not a scientist herself, but she was understanding what the scientists were, were trying to tell her and being able to translate that into not only policy decisions, but communications to the general public. So that initial response was uh, extraordinary. We, we did have one of the strictest lockdowns with the highest level of compliance. And we leveraged, you know, our strategic advantage of being an island state to enormous effect. We didn't squander it the way other island states like Britain did. I saw a recent analysis that said, had we taken a similar approach to Britain had in, the, in that first wave and throughout the rest of 2020 and, and, and really most of 2021 until people were vaccinated, the estimate is another 15,000 New Zealanders would have died. As it is, our, our total death toll is, is um, around 3,300, 3, I think, at the moment. So it wasn't really until we'd been fully vaccinated, we'd got through a very difficult Delta lockdown and the Omicron came along and they, you know, there was a massive adaptation in the policy response at that stage. But, you know, we'd, we'd largely built a level of immunity that helped mitigate, if you like, the worst of it. But I'd say she doesn't do framing capital F. She frames intuitively. It's an, and it's a very embodied, very much there. Mm. Present, just like anyone else, as opposed to you know the line of police commissioners, fire commissioners, and you get you know everybody. She's there, she's present. Run, run, runs through her, and I think that exacted a huge personal and physical, physiological cost, emotional cost, massive. If you're all in, yeah, you know, you know, you can't fake that kind of framing. It's it, it, it's there. So by being embodied, that you lay yourself open, uh, but you're also you know and that. To be honest, and we'll talk about, you know, the, the resignation, but I was genuinely concerned for about six months about her health, Justin, and how she was. And let's not underestimate the personal cost that was required to be able to create that authentic leadership that Sue's talked about. And I think the other would be, you know, we did quite a lot of appreciative inquiry. She was very appreciative, in other words, so it wasn't so much, I'm okay, we were looking for compliance, but really what she was celebrating was commitment to, with examples of, you know, noticing what was going on in different parts of Aotearoa and bringing attention to to what people were doing, going beyond duty, the call of duty, I suppose, you know, and she did it in a way, I think. So So it was like uh, inviting people to get behind this, and it was an invitation, it wasn't that you should, but actually acknowledging and appreciating the level of commitment which she was being and, and celebrating that too, but doing it very much hand in hand. I think Susan was a superb example of co-leadership with Ashley Broomfield and, you know, the science, but just saying we do this, we do this together. So, yeah, I, I just think it's, an, and it's an interesting point when you think about those crisis leadership, and I know Historically, people have said crisis really, as Sue says, brings out is the ultimate acid test of, of leaders and leadership. But the problem is when you're perceived to be so effectively leading crises and responding, when you don't have an obvious crisis, what happens? I mean, what? how do people re respond? You know, go back to Churchill again, you know, great in wartime, but wasn't the right person in in peacetime. And this is the, the, the conventional wisdom. I'm not suggesting it's, but it's, 
there is a bit of a conventional wisdom is brilliant in a crisis, but what happens after? So I think that's that's something to, yeah, certainly textbook plus genuine mm. crisis leadership, but then beyond that, combination of physical, physiological challenge and maintaining momentum. Suze, when we spoke for the first time, it was after the truckers event in Canada. And then you were telling me about some incidents that occurred in New Zealand. And it seems like there was this kind of contextual shift and got vicious. And and as the context shifts and gets vicious, it's no longer just people in New Zealand being vicious. You literally have the world right? Any bad actor from China or Iran or in North Korea can begin stirring the pot and get and it gets vicious. Is that an accurate mm-hmm. assessment? Is that a was there a contextual shift that she then had to navigate some white waters that were Yes, yeah. So in 2020, you know, when the pandemic starts, the first lockdown, and we come out of that with zero COVID in the community. So and closed borders to try and keep it out. And we basically have this pretty luxurious dream run through the rest of 2020 and most of 2021. You know, we're kind of looking out at the rest of the world going, oh, my God, there's so many people dying. But here we were incredibly, incredibly safe. But because, you know, we're all networked, people are also noticing all the kind of anti-government, anti-COVID, anti-COVID protection, anti-science kind of discourse that is playing out in other countries and it's, it's seeping in here. And when we had a Delta outbreak in August of 2021, which resulted in a very extended period of lockdown in Auckland, which is our largest city, during that period, those that track, track and trace what's going on in disinformation and kind of conspiracy networks, we're seeing a really a huge uptick in engagement with that kind of stuff. And so we started seeing anti-lockdown and anti-vaccination stuff really, really reaching a, a much higher level of intensity and a much broader reach than before. And, and then that all kind of reaches a fever pitch in February 2022 with the the parliamentary kind of convoy lockdown, you know, just to very briefly say, that was very nearly our January 6th. It, w- it was very close to the police losing control of the situation. But that it had a radicalising effect. And so, you know, throughout the rest of 2022, it became increasingly difficult for Ardern to go and engage in public events without encountering, you know, abusive protesters, the the stuff online was there. And in some sense, you know, and I'm not saying our opposition parties were spreading conspiracy theories, they they were not, but they were leveraging that level of distrust and discontent. They're pushing hard on the fact that now we had inflation and the government wasn't controlling the cost of living crisis, if you like, completely ignoring that many of those things are actually quite difficult for a government to manage when they're driven by events in, in Russia and the Ukraine, right? But it just there was this just growing groundswell of, of discontent. Her party was falling behind in the polls. This kind of narrative developed around her that she was a divisive leader. I think that I have a problem with that because actually her behaviour is is never divisive. You know, she is kind of very much kind of the calm one in the room looking for middle ground. But, you know, people are wanting to express their opposition in quite extreme manners. That's where the divisiveness comes from. It's actually there, the way they're choosing to express themselves. All of last year really was, was I think, a really difficult time. And it must have, you know, it must have uh, weighed upon her, the level of abuse that was coming her way in, in some way, shape or form, the fact that it, there were even protests held at schools, really nasty stuff playing out in front of children, which I'm sure she would have been really upset, upset about that somehow her presence at the school was creating this nastiness that children were exposed to. Susan's point about the internet, social media, the dark side, how that's very much a global phenomenon. And New Zealand sort of always prided itself as being, well, we would never do that. Uh, never be like that here like it is in the states or in the uk or australia in australia you know it's sort of like and yet 
I think those influencing that positioning became quite, and obviously persuade, persuaded. And what, what surprised me was, you know, the way, in fact, you know, they're always the, the fringe, you know, it could be the 5% or whatever. But that kind of, I guess, competition for what's, what's, what's really going on started to persuade more and more of the middle, middle ground. And, and, uh, you know, it's, so it's a, it is interesting, you know, as leadership scholars, we just, we, we get virtual leadership, but we don't really get it. We don't, we haven't really started to understand the influence that has and the, and, and the dynamics. And with the Jacinda case, I mean, I don't want to use this as a case, but the richer would be to look at what are the motivations for followers that, you know, those that, what go, what's going on there in terms of the drive, people that had been actually supporting, actively celebrating Jacinda and what we were doing to suddenly, why did that shift? Why did that, what, what was the turning point around that? And there's an awful lot going on emotionally for people, you know, there's the, the insecurity of the economic future, a whole bunch of things. And so what really, we've had some recent conversations about this, Sue, we're just very concerned about the sort of standard of basic, decent behaviour and discussion. So people, you know, the social media will bring the worst out of people, it's occasionally the best, but it's when it starts to permeate in what goes on in the street, you know, when you're lining up for in the grocery or when... You know, you see someone complaining about someone shouting at someone. It just never happened when I when I first arrived here, and yet it seems to be coming normal. So it's it's all part of I think people have pent up frustration, pent up. We've done this, we've come through this, and now you know we. I think it, that shift and the fact that it's happened in the middle, reasonable. You know, the quiet New Zealand. You know, get on with it. That's what's worried me, and that's I think what the as, as Sue says. You know, we. I was pleased when we had the protests that there was a united focus from politicians, but it all started to come unstuck and start to around when people start to exploit this in a way I think was, you know, it's it's uh, in a way natural political capital, but it's not the way we've generally done things here and it's not what we're about. So that's the thing that I think most exercises me, and I know Sue's and a few others that we've talked that this, this is not on, this is not what we're about, it's not what we stand for. But I just think we've, we've only began to really scratch what is really going on there. And I think we as leadership scholars need to get into that and understand that it's murky, it's unpleasant, it's hostile, but it's got huge implications for democracy generally. You know, around you can't seal it off. You can, you can seal a, a pandemic response to a certain extent, but you can't seal this... Uh, ideological ferment globally we need to be much smarter in terms of understanding but also finding ways to to address it i, I think that that's the piece that i'm taking more richly from the just in the in addition to you know superb exemplary crisis leadership but there's a, sort of a two things i think that are really important for us to learn the, the positive but also some of the negative things that are happening now what what do we learn from that what do we do about that it's important for us in new zealand but it's important globally as well well, and it seems that that there was just kind of ever worsening sexism, misogyny that that she was being subjected to. Again, some of this behavior becoming more normalized, or some of the social media normalizing some of this behavior. Where again, I can be anywhere in the world and just hurling horrible, horrible content. That Sue's, how do you make sense of that? I mean, it's 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 very very troubling. Yeah, that's important. We not understate in any way just how vile the stuff that she was being subjected to was. So the the researchers at the Disinformation Project published a report in November last year that had some of the, I think, the, roughly the 30-odd keywords that they were tracking that were used in relation to Ardern as a key target. So the C word was the number one word. Most of the other words, you know, associated with some kind of death or murder or rape, her child's name is on that list. The Christchurch terrorist's name is on that list as one of their heroes. So they're, they're enmeshed in this incredibly hateful, hateful discourse. And I, I do think that maybe part of what is going on here is that there was, there was a period of time, particularly with the, the pandemic, where people were scared. We were quite right rightfully really scared about what risk it posed to us and we were wrapped up safe the borders shut and Auntie Jacinda if you like or mum was kind of looking after us and, and we were kind of dependent on her and I wonder if 
part of what's going on for people is that they just can't bear being dependent on a woman. And so what you've got, if you like, then is this kind of huge counter-reaction, this you know refusal to have to give her any space, to give her any legitimacy, to listen to anything that she's got to say. So it is this kind of actually this huge backlash about, oh my God, I was relying on that that woman and she's just, you know, she's just a girl in a skirt or she's a witch or she's a, you know, shape-shifting lizard person or whatever nonsense it is that they're caught up in. So I think there's there's something going on, I think, for, for people that having to listen to a woman issue instructions, um, having to see a woman make decisions um, on, you know, difficult policy issues, there's just this fundamental, how dare she? How dare that woman tell me what to do? And so I think there's just, a, you know, and that's just that basic kind of underlying misogynistic women should not be having a say in this stuff. They should be docile and submissive and silent. There's this really kind of raw kind of misogynistic patriarchal tension that's in there. And it, uh, to be very clear, it's not only coming from men. It is very definitely there are plenty of women who are expressing who express hatred towards her as well. And you know, there's there is research, you know, that helps us unpack why women might do that. If she can achieve that, it says something to me that I can't. So I have to tear her down because in tearing her down, I make myself feel better. I was thinking, Suze, about a sort of just you described beautifully adolescent rage, you know. Yes. <laughs> Actually verging on toddler rage. Yes. <laughs> And I've always been struck by the slight passive-aggressive undercurrents in, in Aotearoa because on the surface, everybody's very pleasant and nice, but we do see people, particularly this sort of notion of, we call it tall poppy, but this ambiguity people have about authority and authority figures generally because one of the key drivers here in New Zealand, finding New Zealand, was creating autonomy. That was the, the, the and, and, and equality and all these kinds of things. I just want to add another dimension to that, Suze, because there was a feeling that because she was getting so much international attention, being held up as an exemplary leader and in a world where there weren't many exemplary leaders, she was, you know, the UN, the Queen, the various prime ministers. I mean, she was, and to be honest, it's interesting because we should be feeling, well, we're getting great recognition for a New Zealand leader. But going back to the sort of psychodynamic, I think people felt jealous that was being recognized she's giving you this attention here great for her but what about us stuck here and we're facing and so there is an, an element there i think about because i think a lot of people who aren't new zealanders would say well, what, what's going on here i mean you've got someone here that we're desperate to have as our leader what the hell are you why are people unhappy around that but i think there is a sort of an anger and as you say i think it's you're bang on Sue's people just being really scared, really terrified and feeling really sure. And then all of a sudden feeling this, you know, this, this this has to get emanate in some kind of hostility or some kind of frustration. But the international profile, funnily enough, I think served to stoke for these people who felt left out, felt, you know, that we've been let down and mum, auntie, you know, I don't want to get into too much of, uh, of that, but I think there's something very deep down there that's, well beyond the sort of conventional psychological exp explanations of and i think it's the thing that we need to better understand if we are to find ways to to, to channel that you know the, the other important contextual features of course there were things that the government was doing that people quite legitimately and reasonably would say that's not good enough or i disagree so i'm not suggesting for one for one moment that every decision that she's made is, is perfect or right or you know necessarily the best that's that's fine. It's the way that people have chosen to express their dissent that is the problem, and that it shows such a hugely there's such a hugely gendered characteristic to that. We can't understand the situation if we don't pay attention to that stuff. What's fascinating to me, or what what I kind of come back to, is how do you succeed? I, I don't want to say in this context, but we are in a space where there's been reports that she'll probably need security for the rest of her life for her and her family. I mean, because of the death threats and it, it's just who wants to lead? <laughs> well, you're going to have only narcissists and really people who are not well psychologically raising their hand because, you know, what we're subjecting our leaders to is, is horrible. 
And what they are subjected to is horrible. And I think that's another opportunity for scholars. These these folks, regardless of your political affiliation, what they're enduring, what their families are enduring, it's just, it's damaging. It's damaging. And it ranges from horrible to just bad. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's the bigger picture and the, you know, the kind of the, the legacy worry, isn't it? Is that we, we know that Ardern was the number one target, but we also know that, you know, other women MPs and MPs who are people of colour, you know, are also particularly, you know, at risk of this same kind of vitriol. And the more it becomes normalised, the more it's just, well, that's that's how we treat people in public life. And actually, yeah, as you say, if we if we want to have decent human beings in public public life, then we actually need to treat them like decent human beings should. So it is it's really concerning. I think the the thing that's so concerning about what's happened here is that New Zealand is not a country that has got, you know, like the, the decade of deep divisiveness that say the US has seen or or Britain in relation to, to the Brexit. This has happened in an extremely short period of time. And Arduna was re-elected in late 2020 with an outright majority, which was the first time that had happened in the 20-odd years that we've had, was it 30-odd years we've had MMP, I almost 20, The erosion of civil discourse has happened really, really rapidly. And it is really clear that there are foreign influences in this, and I'm, I'm not being conspiratorial and necessarily saying we, we know that money is coming. We do know that money is coming from Steve Bannon to support one of the major disinformation broadcasters here. That's that you know, they're, they're very happy to brag about that. So, thanks, Bannon. It's also really noticeable the extent to which they are spouting Putin's talking points with respect to Ukraine. So, even if they're not getting money from Russia, spreading Russian disinformation, they're spreading. Putinese propaganda in our country, and that's that's not helpful. What well, was already a difficult job of leading, right? Just nigh on impossible, and that's not good for all of us, any of us. I guess you know the, the thought occurred to me is the Sue's point about how it's happened so quickly, so compressed, so it hasn't been properly processed. And I guess Sue's one of the things that I don't think there was some, some a lot of attention around Jacinda's resignation. People recognizing, you know, the hostility of the autistic behavior and a whole bunch of things. But it's amazing in two weeks with a new leader, and it happens to be a male, Chris Hipkins. We have two two leaders, one's called Chris, both called Chris, Christopher Lux and Chris Hipkins. And that um, it's like, and the polls have already gone up for the Labour male poll. And the way, you know, we'll get back to basic that, that this kind of uh, agenda. And it's just so it's reinforcing exactly what you're saying, Sue, about. How this is to quote this, this this healing. I do think it was significant that there was only about one person who stood up to be the leader. And you might you might say, well, actually, that's a sign of a party that's united and integrated. But I, it, you know, if, if if people say to me, "Do you have a criticism of, of Jacinda?" and, and uh, I would say is the ability uh, to be able to create a, a very strong cabinet and caucus. Because, you know, my time spent in Wellington, that's probably the thing that most impressed me is that, you know, you can focus on a leader, but it's it's about that cabinet and it's about that broader caucus. And when you're so focused on that kind of distal leadership versus that proximal leadership, you know, globally and without a lot of that kind of, quote, management, political mm-hmm. management piece. Mm-hmm. And I'd say if there was a weakness, I would. that's probably an area that I would say, so, you know, we're creating the, the strongest collective leadership platform. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And that's often a problem when you've got someone who is so leader focused in terms of that. I'm not saying she did that by design, but I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that where were the the hair parents? Where was that? Uh, we were looking around, thinking, well, who else a would be crazy enough to do this, and b have that. And thankfully, Chris and Captain said he was a, a student union president when I was at Victoria many years ago, and uh, he is. We're lucky to have that as a successor, but. I just feel that I'm most, most concerned about the future of democracy here. And in particular, going back to the impacts is that this has had on younger people, school kids, even my grandchildren, 
they've seen this and i just i just wonder about the effect it's going to have a long-term effect on their attitudes towards leadership and to, to democracy that's mm. something we really need to grasp the chances of having a if you like left of center female prime minister in the next decade are extremely low because you know those left of center parties would just look at it and go hmm what is this going to cost us you know just despite if you like whatever skills and competencies the the candidate might have we have seen that immediate bounce in the polls because she's been replaced by a man a man who is also strongly associated with the covid response right which supposedly was the thing that was agitating people therefore the chances are that actually if we're going to have another prime minister in, in the next decade it's she's going to come from the the right to the center right side of the of the house because we you know we know that you know internationally i don't don't know if we've got absolute data on this new zealand i guess guess we have that most of the disinformation people are enmeshed in you know far-right conspiracies so they're not they're not likely to attack their own nearly so much we do have two strong deputy leaders women but i think our point about the center is and if there's another thing i would say is how to hang on to that center is the toughest thing in the, in the new zealand context but you've got to do that and i think just in this case just because of that shifting context the center was lost but we there's a reason why we need to focus on that center i think mm-hmm. you know. I, i've said it a couple of times on the podcast that you know how do you monetize the middle right how do you monetize yeah. that because yeah. you know republicans and democrats compromise today to help the american people you know, isn't being clicked and the extremes are being clicked and then the algorithm's elevating and then attitudes and emotions and are elevating. And, you know, it's, there's something in here and I'm not wise enough to know what it is, but there also seems to be a sense of, it, it can very quickly, leaders can lose command of the narrative. And very quickly some of these influences leaders whether they're leading a fortune 500 organization or a family-owned business or a country are going to have to put significant efforts in framing the narrative and commanding the narrative and highlighting the good and highlighting all of the positives that are happening because billions of dollars are being spent to spin the opposite narrative it's big business it's big business I, I think keeping us stirred up is big business. Again, no one's clicking on the compromise story. <laughs> and so I don't know. There's something in there about did she lose command of the narrative and then we couldn't adjust quickly enough to ensure that there was a command of the narrative. And I see that happening in the States as well, whether that's the governor of my state and how is he communicating all of the good so that all of that negativity is balanced at it at, at least right because then that negativity just takes over that becomes truth and people get agitated i don't know if that resonates or not but it, it seems like as i listen to the two of you there's there's a loss of of some of that narrative that she seemed to have such an incredible command of one of the things about about her is that she's actually not argumentative so in parliamentary question time, when she is asked questions, she will come back, if you like, strong about, no, this is what we've done and this and this and this, and you are wrong to say this and this and this. So she's, yeah. you know, she's very assertive in that parliamentary thing. But you know, when she's asked questions by journalists, her tone is always much more tempered. She doesn't rise to any bait around, mm. around that stuff. So in some sense, her problem was, you know, damned if she does and damned if she doesn't, right? Because yes, we yes. all know the angry, we all know the angry woman kind of trope, you know. So she had to work incredibly hard, you know, under extreme provocation, not to do that. Her conduct in, in the house, you know, accords with the norms of how people conduct themselves in, in the house generally. So there was that, you know, she kind of couldn't be caught out with criticism on there and most people don't watch it anyway is the reality yeah. it's a delicious irony there Suze, because you know people are always complaining about the house and what an appalling oh, yes and, and in fact a lot of people when they say look i became disengaged with politics it's because of what i see and hear in the in the house and i i suppose 
you know, Sue's, you spent many years in public service. I spent some time in Wellington too. And you see some, you know, that seems to be quite an exception because there's some really well-meaning people doing some amazing work there too. And unfortunately, most people have no idea. They just see the 30-second thing. And so this is something we could do about that. But it's ironically, it's that disenchantment with the conventional chambers of discussion that have led people to become much more susceptible. Uh, politicians are all, you know what I mean? Yep. I do think there is an opportunity, and I, I guess I'm a chronic optimist. I'm unusual for, for an academic, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do think, because, you know, we've had discussions about how do you buy this huge, you know, influence in, you know, in the internet, et cetera, and drive. And I I suppose I'm a, because I'm probably an analog kind of person, not a <laughs> not a digital person, I do think that there is something we've got there in terms of our abilities to engage with, you know, let's face it, our students. I mean, I've got 245 Elcom 101 students. There are others, you know, communities. I do think we need to think about, and it's interesting because I've, I've, you know, I've got uh, my stepson from Brazil. He's 17. He's staying with me right now. And I'm amazed what he tells me about what he knows about the world. And I go, where did you, where did you get that, you know? And I've been so naive about that. But what I've been doing with him is just taking him to places, showing him stuff trying to develop his ability to note, to sense, to smell, to, to not rely on this this bloody phone to, to make sense of the world. So I think we almost have to create compelling alternatives because uh, the awful phrase that always haunts me in leadership is that we get the leaders we deserve. <laughs> in my respect, what are we doing here? You know, How do we create more sophisticated, more critical consumers of leadership? How do, how do we instill people to say, make your own mind up? use your own data don't go with what emotionally feels appeals to your teenage angst or whatever it is so i just think we've got to rethink just generally we've got that opportunity i'm sure we need a fight in in the internet but i also think we've got a great opportunity and and so you know my pleasure about being in Arturo, the thing i most love being in wellington was being able to talk to mm-hmm. prime ministers talk to ministers you know you'd line up getting a sandwich scott and you've got the Minister of Finance there, you know, paying three dollars fifty for a sub on the same way you are, and having a chat with them and seeing and and just feeling connected on a very basic level about that. And and I think the more we can find opportunities to get people to actually make their own decisions based on what they see and hear and, and a part of. I know it's old school, but I I just think that's something I value. That is what I'm really worried, and I you know as an immigrant, it's what I really concerned about losing. Mm-hmm. Because it's been so special for me compared to my other experience elsewhere in the world, and so this is this is vital. But it's our responsibility. What do we do? I guess my my sense is that I do think Arjun will be judged very kindly by historians as probably amongst the best prime ministers that New Zealand has ever had throughout the world. Yeah. She's had a significant impact. She's navigated some extremely difficult things uh, incredibly well, and that there are you know there are many positive lessons we can take you know from her approach to to leadership, particularly you know her centering around values of you know and ethics of care and inclusion and re- being respectful in how she dealt people, combined with her courage to make difficult decisions you know and you could see that many of those difficult decisions did weigh heavily uh, upon her so there is a the sense I think too that you know in many instances she rose above partisan political consideration she was very much trying to if you like play a states person like role to govern truly in the in the national interest but that one of the big lessons as well out of her experience is just how pervasive a factor sexism and misogyny can be for women leaders and also just how followers, for that, for lack of a better word, can have so many unrealistic expectations as to make a, a leader's job virtually unbearable. That's a concern. We'll be mining lessons from her for, for years to come and I'm sure that she will go on to continue to make some kind of leadership contribution, I suspect, on an international stage at least partly because it's not terribly safe for her here, which is which is terrible. You know, once she's had a bit of a break, there'll be plenty more that she can give and, you know, that she'll continue to be an inspiring role model for, for many people. 
Well, as as a leadership scholar, you know that we are often asked, well, who do you think is a great leader? And, and she has been my answer. And I think we owe it to her and we owe it to future leaders who, as Teddy Roosevelt would say, step into the arena to to better understand what they're stepping into, the good, the bad, the ugly, to prepare them for some of that work so that they are better prepared to navigate some of that, like I said earlier, to go back to Peter Vale's, the, the white water that they're going to experience from all directions. And and so I just, I really appreciate you two spending some time today and helping us make sense. And I'm sure listeners, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some links to some articles that the two of you suggest people read so that they can better understand the situation and make sense themselves and start to reflect and think about this topic because it's an important one. And I, I can't thank you enough. I really, I, I couldn't have thought of a better way to spend my evening than with the two of you learning. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Curious, Scott. Episode 150 of Phrenesis was called Stay Curious. And that was a discussion with Tony Middlebrooks. I was reflecting on the first 150 episodes of this project called Phronesis. And I love that title, Stay Curious. What we have here is some individuals trying to make sense of Jacinda Ardern and what she experienced over the course of her role as leader in New Zealand. And there was some incredible good, there was some bad, and there's some ugly. And I said it in the episode, I think the practical wisdom for me is, how do we better prepare leaders for what they're about to experience on any number of different dimensions? Because the work is so gnarly, so complex, that you almost have to be superhuman in some of these instances to be successful. But I think we're staying curious. We're engaging in the dialogue. We're trying to make sense. And we're wandering a little bit at times, but trying to figure out how to do this work better, to better prepare individuals to be successful when leading in informal or formal positions, trying to make a difference, trying to make the world a better place. That's the practical wisdom for me. We need to do a better job of that because it's hard. It's difficult. As always, thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for checking in. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.